0: morning. I uh, sometimes kind of give away my age. Uh, I'm still one of those people who likes Reader's Digest. There's some of you who are saying, what's that? Just don't worry. Uh, Ask your grandparents. It's in their doctor's offices, I assure you. And, and it has a column in there called All in a Day's Work. I once wrote a letter to submit to it, and I just never got around to posting it. I, I still know I could have gotten $75 for it. I kind of... But, but it, it just wouldn't work if I sent it now. It's too many years after the fact. But there was one that was in there. True, you know, these are true stories from work. This lady wrote, As a legal assistant to trial attorneys, I thought I had heard every excuse prospective jurors might give to avoid serving on a jury. That was until one woman recently came forward and announced, Your Honor, I cannot possibly serve in your courtroom without bias. For you see, I am a psychic. I already know the outcome of this case. (laughs) The judge dismissed her, whereupon she replied, Yes, of course, I knew you would. (laughs) Now, that lady was aware of a coming judgment, supposedly. But... I'm increasingly concerned not only that we live in a world that doesn't know it is facing a a, a coming judgment, but that we live in a church that may not know that we face a coming judgment. I, I think this issue of the judgment of God is important because the Bible speaks about it repeatedly, Old and New Testament. It has so much to say about it. And um, because it's kind of initially discomforting to us, we don't kind of run into studying judgment. It's an unpopular topic. Last year, Psychology Today had an article in which they said approvingly, enlightenment values have made the angry God of the Old Testament... And many other biblical concepts seem more akin to mythology than revealed truth. But it's not just psychology today or something out there in the world. There was a Michigan pastor, no longer a pastor, and at the time he was regarded as an evangelical, but at the time he wrote a book called Love Wins in which he said, everybody goes to heaven, whatever that is. He kind of lost that title evangelical and eventually, thankfully, lost the title of pastor. But even Andy Stanley, a guy who is still today considered an evangelical, a guy who has a very influential church in Atlanta. His dad was a well-known pastor, is, uh, Charles Stanley. And even Andy, who produces materials through his church that churches all around the, the country use. He recently said... Have you heard preachers rant about sin? It's like they're angry at sinners and angry about sin. They're just judgmental. They're angry at sinners and happy about hell. That's Old Covenant thinking leaking in. It's mix and match. It's an Old Covenant prophet railing against the nation of Israel. God's going to judge you. God's going to get you. That's Old Testament. That's Old Covenant. Do you know what we discover in the New Covenant, he writes? that sin doesn't make God angry. That's not the New Testament that I read. When I think of the two most momentous historical accounts recorded in the New Testament, it's Jesus Christ hanging on the cross for my sin and yours and then being raised by the power and glory of God to a new life to tell us that we would be too if we trusted in him. But you can't look at that crucifixion and tell me God was not angry at sin. It was the epitome, the pouring out of the anger of God against my sin and yours. And that's not the only place the anger of God against sin shows up. Now, it's true. There have been preachers over the years who have, who have thundered in a resentful, hostile way about all you sinners and what God's going to do to you. That's true. But the idea of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, the idea of throwing out the judgment of God because the judgment of God has been mishandled is inappropriate. And that's not only true within the church. It's true in our witness to others. Um, I love the XM radio station, The Message. I love the music. I get to hear really good music, and there are really a lot of good things in there. But I will tell you this. For every 15 hours I might hear on The Message in a month, I would say I hear about the love of God and the grace of God probably, you know, 400 times. I don't know that I hear of the justice of a holy God who must judge. And do we realize that the reason the good news is good is because the bad news is bad. You know, throwing off the idea of authority and judgment is nothing new. It isn't just true in our day. I mean, granted, in our day and Uh, the days that we're living in right now, people throw off judgment more than I've ever seen. That's without question. When I was growing up in the 60s, even people who were without Christ had a certain respect very often, a certain reverential recognition uh, very often of the holiness of God or the judgment of God, maybe in varying degrees. But the reality was there was a consciousness that people stood under judgment. But today, that's passe. That's disregarded. And yet, it goes back to the garden We realize God offered Adam and Eve everything in this beautiful world. He said, Enjoy it, eat what you will, fill the earth, subdue it. Obviously, under my lordship, but I've got a great world for you to enjoy. Just one thing don't eat from this fruit of this tree because you'll die. That was a warning of judgment. And what does Satan come along and do? You won't die. You won't die. You see, that message is still being perpetrated. One of the reasons that you and I are to announce the gospel, the good news to people, is because the front half of the good news is very bad news. And if we're not declaring the good news fully, we're, we're adding to the potential in a manner of speaking, that people go into a Christless eternity with no idea of the judgment coming their way. Now, thankfully, by God's grace, he does bear witness in their spirit. He, he, he makes it plain. We can't look at all the places. Scripture makes it plain that God bears witness within people's spirit that, that they will live in eternity. The Bible makes it plain that they're convicted of sin and they're convicted of righteousness and they're convicted... Of of judgment to come. The Bible has made that plain. But the point is, you and I have a role to play in that. But I'm concerned sometimes that at least I and many of us have come too close to adopting the mindset of there is no judgment. What we're going to look next week at is two specific judgments, two specific judgments named in the Bible. There are two judgments that take place on two thrones. One of them is a judgment for Christians. We'll we'll look at that. We'll look at what that's about and what it's for because there are many Christians who are just not that aware of the judgment to come. If you're a Christian today, if you've come to a saving knowledge of Christ, somewhere along the way, hopefully you heard the good news that you have, quote, passed out of judgment into life. That's what John 5.24 says. You don't have to face that judgment that he's talking about. We'll look at that next week, too. That's another judgment, which is a a judgment that everybody outside of Christ will have to face. But but what we have to recognize is this judgment of God that's going to fall on people without Christ and judgment that's going to fall on people who are in Christ is because of what God is like. It's what he's like. It's, 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 it's who he is. And, and sometimes in our desire to draw near to gentle Jesus, meek and mild, we forget he's also a lion of Judah. And a reverential, accurate picture of God is that he is a lion who, by his grace, allows us to embrace his mane. He is no impotent God. Um... We're going to look at a number today rather than looking at one passage, one eight-verse stanza or something like that. We're going to be doing kind of a Bible sword drill. We're going to run around a bunch of passages in the Old and New Testament because what we're trying to do today is just sort of a general picture of sort of a general theology of the judgment of God. It's just good information to know whether you're a Christian or not. If you're a Christian, it's good for you to know so that you can kind of be more aware of these things. If you don't know Christ yet or you don't know if you do, it's an invitation for you to get to know God, at least aspects of God. The first one, we'll see, see this list. We're going to look through Psalm 96.10 and Ezekiel 33.11, 2 Peter 3.9, Hebrews 9.27, two passages in Ecclesiastes, James 4.12, Isaiah 33.22. And those are on your sermon notes if you have them or on your app if you have them. Uh, so, And I'm going to kind of walk through those right now if we can do that. Turn first to Psalm 96. Psalm 96, verse 10. Psalm 96 and verse 10. Say among the nations, that is, this is to be announced to all peoples, you know, Jew and Gentile alike, American, Mexican, Canadian, Afghani, announce it everywhere. We've got people going up to Maine I think this week, uh, uh, up to an island in Maine that some of us have gotten to travel to. Some of our youth are going this week or next uh, to, to share in ministry with uh, these people on Vinyl Heaven, Maine, in this, in this uh, lobstering community. We've got people going to China. We've got people coming from Ecuador and Mexico next week coming here. All of these are part of, of say among the nations, the Lord reigns. That means he's in charge. Indeed, the world is firmly established, it will not be moved. The Lord reigns. It's firmly established, it won't be moved. It's a little bit like um, when my kids were younger. Oh, it's so good that this is a distant memory. (laughs) For six days, we have been enjoying our first empty nest in 32 years. Thank you, Lord. I wish I'd known about this a long time ago. It's really nice. But they, at times, different ones of them would own an Xbox, and friends would come over to play Xbox. And whichever of our kids, and this is true when they went to their friend's house, whoever owned the Xbox got to determine who was going to play in which game and who got which controller. I don't understand that because I'm just all thumbs, so I just can't do those things. But, you know, you've got... High speed kind of controllers. You've got gray, silver controllers that are really do something. I don't know. Black ones, you got wireless, you got wired, you got old ones, you got new ones. And so it's a battleground, but the person who owns the Xbox gets to make the rules. Well, the Lord reigns. It's firm, the world is firmly established, will not be moved, but look at what he says next. He will judge the peoples with equity. Whenever he refers to the peoples, he's referring to all the nations. Meaning those who know it and those who don't, they'll all be judged by the same God. And it'll be with complete fairness, equity. It'll be with a God who knows everything. They'll be judged with equity. But, but you know, sometimes when we hear about judgment, we hear about God's judgment, we sometimes are tempted like the, writer I quoted a minute ago, um, we're sometimes thinking that that means God's out to bust us, that he just can't wait to bust your chops. In reality, when God speaks of judgment, it's a grace. It's one of God's greatest kindnesses. We sometimes think that the announcement of judgment, and and part of this, again, is as I said before, it's because sometimes when people announce the judgment of God, they do it with such contempt as if they're above it. And and so I, I get that. But do you realize if God wanted to, he didn't have to tell us anything. He could have just told us to live. And he'll square it all up later. In which case, we would not have known what we were in for. And everyone would have fallen short. Everyone. Everyone would have been condemned. You, me, your mother, your wonderful aunt, everybody. But because God doesn't want ultimately to judge, He tells us, He warns us out of kindness. It's why He tells you and me to tell other people, it's because of His kindness. You're being kind when you share the reality of the judgment of God and the grace of God that is greater than all of our sin. It's a kindness. It's, it's a little bit like, and I have to apologize to any of you men or women who are state troopers, because I'm sure none of you know this, but when we see you on the side of the road with radar, when we pass you, we flash our lights at oncoming traffic. <laughs> we, we want them to know you're there. I realize that kind of cuts into your whatever it is it cuts into, but that's what we do. I know it's new. I know it's surprising. But, but let me ask the rest of you, when you see the flashing headlights of a car coming at you and they flash their headlights, what do you do? You slow down. You might even be under the speed limit and you slow down. <laughs> you know, it's just that kind of present guilty conscience sort of deal. But reality is... It's a kindness. I'm not saying I want to be mean to you and let you get a ticket, ha, ha, ha. I'm saying be aware. Some of the really nice people go flashing people all the time, even when there aren't police, everybody else will slow down. That's, that's okay, too. <laughs> but the reality is that God warns of judgment because that's not ultimately his desire. His desire is rather that people would be delivered. Now, how do I know that? There are, I mean, I'm just going to point out two passages. There are many more. Really, the Bible is filled with it. If you think about it, Mark's series from Isaiah was exactly this point. Isaiah has more statements of judgment in it than any other book I know in the whole Bible. And yet, you know what? The book is ultimately about this. God saves. The message wasn't judgment for judgment's sake. Was there judgment for Judah and Israel? Yes. Was there judgment for the neighboring nations? Absolutely. Was there a near-coming judgment? Absolutely. Was there a distant judgment? Completely. But was it fundamentally a book about judgment? Or was it fundamentally about a God who, in spite of the reality of a coming judgment about which he warns us, is reaching his arm through the son of a virgin To purchase our sin and to give life. Look at uh, this verse with me, Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. It'll it'll be up on the board. Some of you have already gotten there, and so uh, you fast sword drill people, you can go ahead and beat me. I'm okay with that. I'm secure. Uh, But uh, I'll read it, and you can either follow along or read up there. But Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, this is when the Lord is the Lord is telling Ezekiel that he has a responsibility to let people know about coming judgment. And he actually tells him he has a responsibility for people outside Israel as well as inside Israel. That's another matter I won't get into right now. But look at what he says in verse 11. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back turn back from your evil ways, for why will you then die, O Israel? He's saying, I don't take pleasure in the necessary judgment of evil. I have to because of my character. I have to because of who I am. But that's not my pleasure. My pleasure is that you would recognize where you are off base and move towards me who is a God who saves. That is his pleasure. So to preach about judgment isn't fundamentally to preach about the anger of God, but you can't preach about it if you leave that out. That's why next week when we talk about the two judgments, we'll see that. We'll see how different the judgments are for people who are Christians and the the judgment for people who are not Christians. We'll also see how in one way they're the same. And we'll look at that. Lest we think that's an isolated passage or just an Old Testament thing, we wonder if the New Testament really looks at it the same way. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Or look at it up on the screen. In in what is a very severe book. 2 Peter's a very severe book. It, I mean it's really got some of the most Wonderful promises for people who walk with Christ. Wonderful promises. But it also really lays the hammer on people who turn away from what they know to be true. But look at what he does in verse 9. Some of you maybe have thought like this. Some of you maybe have, like I have, looked at the world and said, God, what is taking you? This is so awful, it just needs to stop. Please do something. And, and there's an element about that that I, I still hold. And, and, and probably many of you do. But look at what God says, because in this way, he's not like me. And in this way, he is wanting me to become more like him. Look, look at 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise. That is, he's not slow about the promise to come and to judge, He's not slow about that, as some count slowness. Rather, he is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Why has God held off all the judgments that he might bring today? Because he's patient. Because he doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants everybody to come to repentance. That is the recognition of where they're wrong and where they need to be made right with God. For those who don't yet know if they know Christ or are not really familiar with that language, what that would mean for you is to realize I know without anybody telling me that I have sinned. I may not know all the places I've sinned and all the ways I've sinned, but I know there's something in my insides that tell me I'm out of line. And you are. But the God who lets you know that, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. That is, He lets you know where you're wrong, He lets you know that there's something right, and He lets you know that judgment follows. That's what He does. But He doesn't do that so that you get slapped. He does that so that you would turn to the Lord. Lord, is it really, really true that Jesus died for me? Is it really true he paid for all of my sins? Is it really true that no matter what I've done, you offer forgiveness to those who believe? Is it really by faith? Yes, it really is. So if you don't know Christ yet today, one of the reasons he has you here is so that you can understand that God does not want to judge you. It is part of his nature, as we'll see, but his delight rather is that you would turn, that you would trust him, that you would recognize that he offers a gift of eternal life to all who believe, because they recognize they're a sinner. But you know, it's also true of people who are Christians. He even calls Christians to repent. In a a different way. The core issue for somebody outside of Christ is to recognize I'm a sinner and I need a Savior and Christ is it. And I believe it. The core need for a believer is where is God showing me with that gentle voice that I'm not becoming like Christ? Where do I find myself saying, yeah, I know I have a bit of an anger problem, but, but I've been saying it for 15 years. Where is it that I say, yeah, I'm really impatient and I I cut people off. I just, I get tired of them. I know God's not like that way, but that's what I'm like. And we say that for 20 years. And God, the Holy Spirit is whispering, that's not like me. And as we'll see next week, those are some of the things he's going to look at in our lives. So first, we know that God's going to judge fairly all peoples, and secondly, we know that He warns us because he would rather forgive than judge. Look at Hebrews 9, 27 next. Very briefly, just turn back a couple of books. If you have your Bibles, if not, you can look up there. Hebrews 9, verse 27. The author to Hebrews, which is really a book to believers who have begun to turn away from dependence upon the sufficiency of Christ and a continued movement in becoming like him. There are people who've come to believe, but they're going back to their old lives. He says, "...inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many..." shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait him. That is, we have this promise of this coming Savior. Mark will be, I mean, uh, uh, Don will be talking about that more in the, after next week. But notice what it says. The appointment of God, the one who owns the Xbox, is everyone will die, and after that comes the judgment. There are hundreds of millions of people in this world who think they're going to come back again. That's even crept into the United States. It's even sometimes in Christians who kind of wonder if, well, is this really right about heaven and hell and stuff? I mean, after all, I don't know. There's so many people who don't believe it. Maybe the reincarnation thing might really have something to be said. Well, let me tell you, if the reincarnation has something to be said for it, then just reject the Bible and reject the idea that there is a Savior who died for you and was raised from the dead. Because the same God who tells you about your sin and about his judgment but about his mercy is the same God who says it's appointed for man once to die and after that comes judgment. We'll be looking at that this fall, the idea of whether the Bible is really reliable. Encourage you for you to build your faith uh, and your, your, your love for the scriptures but also for people you may know who may struggle with that. We'll be doing that series this fall. But if the Bible is right, it's made an announcement that we can hold on to and that we can tell our friends. If you're talking to somebody about Christ, you're talking about life and what they think, and they go, well, I just kind of think, I don't know. I live fairly good life. I'm kind of hoping I come back as a golden retriever for a rich person. I don't want to have to deal with the problems of the world. I just want to be happy. And goodness sakes, everybody knows a golden retriever's happy. But, but where people are thinking those kinds of things, they're basically neglecting where God has announced something he wants everyone to know. I'm a just judge. I'm going to do that. Some people don't like that. They feel like that's too absolute. In our day right now, the concept of absolute truth has a really bad reputation. People say, you know, I just don't like the kind of black and white thinking. I, I just... I don't know, I think everybody has to decide for themselves what's true. You ask them why they say that, and they say, well, I just don't think there's one truth. In polls in the last 20 years, Christians have been asked this question in addition to non-Christians about what they think about this, and there's a growing number. I w- I would, you would be ashamed or surprised or shocked or saddened or grieved or I don't know what to find out how many Christians real people who have understood supposedly the, the gospel of grace who would say, yeah, I, I don't know that I can say there's just one truth. So what people say is, there's no one real truth. Everybody has to decide it for themselves. Well, here's a problem. That is presented as if it's an absolute truth. People are saying, there's no one truth. Are, are you sure of that? Well, well, yes. So in other words, that's one absolute truth is that there is no absolute truth. Oh, that doesn't exactly wash, does it? No, it doesn't. Because this God who is a judge owns the Xbox. Turn, if you will, to uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll look briefly back in the Old Testament. Sorry, I'm kind of moving you back and forth, but go in the book of Ecclesiastes. After Proverbs, we'll look at the last chapter. I think the verse will be up here, chapter 12 and uh, verse 13 and 14. This is what the writer says. And this writer is uh, a really wise man, really wise man. Um, I personally still believe it's Solomon. Don Denhartog assures me it's not. Uh, Don knows a whole lot more than I do. He's forgotten more than I'll ever know, but he's wrong on this. But (laughs) I'll, I'll introduce him to Solomon in heaven, and he'll introduce me to the real author. But this is what he says. This guy who's sitting back, almost in a lawn chair with a beverage of choice, saying, what is life like under the sun with the wisdom that God has shown me? It's just like a reflective, like an old man just saying, here's a few things I think I've learned. The conclusion when everything has been heard is this. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this applies to every person, for God will bring every act to judgment, whether, everything which is hidden, whether good or evil. That's not just sort of an aphorism. It's not like just a saying it's revealed truth from the Spirit of God through the writer of Ecclesiastes that every act will be brought to bear before God. This is also said in the New Testament. One of the things it says at one, one passage we'll look at next week in 2 Corinthians 5 where it talks about believers, and it says every act, whether good or bad, will be brought before the Lord at that time. Not for the judgment for our sins, that's been taken care of on Christ, but for answering for our life, And and so there is a seriousness about this thing. But what the author says here is he's saying, you know, there are just a few basics. Fear God, keep his commandments. It applies to everybody because there's a coming judgment. Now, we know from our New Testament reading that the Bible says the law, and this includes that message of the law subsumed in it, it says the law was given so that it might bring us to Christ as a tutor. In other words, when you become convicted, uh uh-oh, my life is going to be bringing me to judgment, you don't stop there. What you do is you say, oh God, if not for your mercy, I'm up a creek without a paddle. God says, you're right, but I do have mercy and I'm glad to give it to you. So the reason he tells us this in Ecclesiastes is A, so that we know what God is like and the fact that our life is brought to judgment so that we take it seriously, but also so that any of us who are honest enough with ourselves and honest with God say, God, I could not withstand your judgment on my own. If I don't have the covering of the blood of Jesus, if I don't have my unrighteous garments taken off of me and the righteous garments of Christ put on me, I don't stand a chance. And for the Christian, you have exactly that. But as we'll see next week, there's God is not evaluating us about heaven or hell or about whether our sins are forgiven. He's evaluating what kind of a life I'm living by faith. Is it a life where I'm actually genuinely trying to become more like Christ and serve Him in whatever capacity I can? Or is my life really to just live for myself, live for my comfort, and just kind of get the people I don't like out of my way? And I'll be honest, I've been both. I think probably a lot of us have. We won't look at it right now, but in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it just says that this this statement that he's just made is true of everybody, whether they're righteous or unrighteous. In other words, this is not just for Jews. This is not just for Christians. It's true for everybody that this judgment is coming. But why does God judge? Why? Why? I said earlier it's because of his nature. We won't go into great detail on this, we'll just touch on it, but, but the first reason I would say that, that God judges and why it's his nature uh, is because, uh, look at James chapter 4 and verse 12, just briefly, James chapter 4 and verse 12, and we'll just be here for a second. James chapter 4 and verse 12. He says, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? But with respect to what we're talking about right now, the key thing that we're addressing here is this theology that God is a lawgiver and judge. In the Old Testament, there's a verse that tells us that he's actually, he's the judge, he's the lawgiver, and he's the king. In other words, he's all three branches of government. That's what it means because he reigns because he owns the Xbox. He can make the laws, he can judge the laws, he can preside over us and execute judgment uh, and, and ex- execute his kingship. But what he tells us here is, do you realize that this God that you serve or this God that you know is both the lawgiver and a judge? Meaning what he teaches, he will hold you accountable for? but t- I love this. I love this part. You don't just stop and say God's a lawgiver and a judge. If that's all we got today, if all you got, I hope you get at least that God is a lawgiver and a judge. But if that's all you'll get, you'll tend to run away. Or else you'll try to perfect yourself, neither one of which works. Try to perfect yourself. You'll find out you're a failure by Thursday. And if you're married, your spouse will let you know you're a failure by Tuesday. (laughs) If you're a parent, they'll let you know by Monday. He is a lawgiver and judge. That's why we're even having this series. We want to remind people of that. But notice the other word. He is able both to save and to destroy. If I only looked at him as a judge, then I know I'd be up a creek. But this is what I know about my judge. He poured all my sins on the cross with Jesus Christ, and he offered me a gift of eternal life at the point when I was his greatest enemy. I was at the worst point of not following him in my whole life. And at the point when I deserved his judgment most in my life, that's when he announced this free gift of eternal life for all who believe. Remarkable God. Could he have destroyed me? He had every right. Instead, he chose to save. And for anybody without Christ, he's still doing it today. He's inviting you. He wants you to trust Christ. He wants you to acknowledge your sin before him and your need of a Savior. He will gladly provide. That is by faith. But for the Christian, there's the recognition that if God is a lawgiver and judge, I know, I know that John 5, 24 is true. I know that it's true that I've passed out of judgment into life. Concerning one judgment, I don't have to fear hell. But he is still a lawgiver and judge, and I do have some consequences that will be brought to me that we'll look at more next week. Why? Because God is a truth-telling God. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, neither a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, will he not do it? Has he spoken, will he not make it good? In other words, that's not like me, and maybe that's not like you. I mean, I'm trying for the Lord as he works through me to make me more that what my word says is exactly what I do. Some of you are great at that, frankly. Some of you are really poor at it. I've been poor at it. God is building his grace and truth in me so that that is, is, is hopefully improving. But here's what it's telling me. Anything God says, he does. So if God says he's judging, here come to Judge. Is happening. Second reason is that this God who is a truth-telling God is also a holy God. Joshua 24:19 says, Joshua said to his people, You will not be able to serve the Lord, for he's a holy God, a jealous God. First Samuel 2:2 2, 2 says, There's no one holy like the Lord, indeed, no one besides thee, nor is there any rock like our God. See, when we properly see the holiness of God, what we do is we bow. And we say, I'm not worthy. And then the Lord comes, and for the non-Christian who is becoming a Christian by faith, he takes off your dirty garments and puts on garments of righteousness. For the Christian, the Christian says, Lord, I know I'm forgiven, but I also know that in some ways that I'm living and speaking, that I'm not telling the truth, I'm deceiving, or I'm hateful or I'm unforgiving, or I'm something else that's not like Jesus, would you both forgive me and change me? And because he's already planted everything necessary for that to happen, he will if you'll avail yourself of the opportunities for it to happen. Like in a church where you go to sermons and you go to learning centers and and you get part of a small group and you meet with another guy or another gal to talk through issues in your life. God is a God who gladly makes you more like Christ. One of my concerns as we finish is this. I think there are a couple of bad ways to respond to this announcement of judgment, and there are a few good ways, and I want to leave us with that. A couple of the bad ways that we can respond to God's judgment is first, uh, that I have nothing to fear before God. I do pretty much what He says. If that's where you are, um, boy, I hope it's true. I just know that in my experience, when I get near holy people, they're far more more grasped by the holiness of Christ than they are by their own. There's always a sense in them of the need and desire to rest on him and to see him to be reflected in their lives more and more. So if a person feels like they've already pretty much arrived, I, I don't see a lot of biblical witness to support that, but I don't think it's a good response. Second one is, if I keep trying hard enough, I'll eventually get it. got bad news. As a Christian, I tried that for 25 years. And did I grow? Yes. Did the Lord take care of some things in my life and make me a little bit more like him? Yes. But what I came to realize was I needed the gospel as a believer as much as I did as an unbeliever. I needed the gospel as an unbeliever so that I could be saved by the good news of what Christ did for me. As a Christian, I needed to know the good news so that I understood it was not about me. It was about letting uh, what he had done in me letting that come to the surface and allowing him to slowly but surely change me. Third, some people come away with, I just can't make this Christian life work. Maybe it works for her, but it doesn't work for me. That's a terrible response to the announcement of judgment. What it ought to be is, God, I know her from Bible study, and there's something about her that has a peace that I don't have. Would you work that in me and... Maybe that involves sitting down and praying with her every couple of weeks. Maybe it's asking her if she's got any insights that might help you. But it's not giving up on God. I'm not talking about giving up on yourself. I hope you give up on yourself. But it's not giving up on God. And fourth, for people to say God's judgment warnings are empty. This world is all there is. I haven't seen him, I haven't seen him judge, so he's not going to. What we'll finish with is a right picture of responding to judgment. First, that God shares with us in his Bible his plans for judgment for the purpose of inviting you to repent. If you don't know Christ, what that means is realizing I'm a sinner and I deserve judgment and I need a Savior. I'm not talking about telling him what you're going to quit doing. I'm not telling him about how you're going to change your life. That's his work. I'm talking about recognizing the truth that you deserve the judgment of God and that you need a Savior, believing his offer of eternal life to all who believe. Secondly, fearing God is an appropriate response. When Proverbs one says 7 says, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, that's still true in the New Testament. We have a God who's worthy of being feared. But get this, it says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, not the end of wisdom. And I don't know the end of wisdom yet. I'll find out when I get to heaven. But I know this much. That at least part of the end of wisdom is when I realize that God's grace, that his mercy for me, that his sufficiency to make me like his son, that that is far greater than all of my sin. That when when I understand that, when I trust in him as a Christian, the way I did when I was a non-Christian, when I say, God, you're going to do a work in me, I'm not going to stop until you get that work done in me. Because you've promised that you will perfect, you'll bring to perfection that which you began in me. And so as a Christian, that's part of me recognizing, I fear you, but I don't, my final estate is not fear. My final estate is appreciative thanks. But I'll tell you, I think when you and I meet the Lord face to face, My suspicion is we'll all have a tendency to bow right off the bat. I hope we will. And then I think because of his eyes, we're going to reach up and let him embrace us. His judgments will be on everything and everyone. And as a Christian, I need to take that to my heart, but I also need to realize that's a motivation for me, to share Jesus with people and to not do it argumentatively and hatefully and scornfully. How could you not believe this? I'll tell you how. It requires the Holy Spirit to be working in a quickening way to convict them concerning sin, judgment, and righteousness, and and it requires the Holy Spirit to open their eyes and for them to receive. We have no place in the world, no place in the world shaming somebody who turns away from the revelation of God. Finally, it should be this word of judgment should be a motivation for me towards repentance where it's needed. God, show me how to be more like you in this specific area because your spirit has shown me. Increased faith in God, the God who saved me when I was his enemy, how much more will he show me his love now? And the pursuit of righteous living, because what I was actually built for and what the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ, as we'll see next week, is going to evaluate is. To what extent did you take the opportunities I gave you and the challenges I gave you to become more like my son? That's what he wants. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for being a God of remarkable grace, but also a God of wise judgment. Thank you that we don't have to wonder if this world is going to be judged. Thank you that the wickedness we see right now, people don't get away with it. Father, I've seen some gross and awful wickedness in my day, and I have sometimes become enraged. I have become murderously enraged. And yet, Father, the reality is you are the only one who knows all the facts. You're the only one who has the right to bring judgment. I don't. And I want to thank you that you're a just judge. I want to thank you that people don't get off in that manner of speaking. And yet I thank you that we're proclaiming a gospel of such grace that our sins are forgiven if our trust is in Jesus Christ and his offer of life to us. Praise you for that and praise you for the fact that we can grow in the knowledge of him and grow in his grace. How I pray that would be the case for us as a church. Please lead us, show us how to do that. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.